But we only have one more week uh, dealing with ecclesiology this week, and next week we are going to get started on the doctrine of eschatology, so we expect a packed house in here. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, that's, I'm looking forward to that, sort of. <laughs> Eschatology is a tough, it's a tough one, but I think we're, we're all going to benefit from it. So, uh, we're looking at, uh, the means of grace. And, uh, you remember, uh, time back, I asked these questions here. What are the different activities within the life of the church that God uses to bring blessing to us? And then what do we miss if we neglect involvement in a local church? Well, we kind of handled the local church part. We talked about how theologians, for all of history, really, uh, they've viewed the church as kind of the great means of grace. So, in other words, it's kind of like, there is no means of grace apart from the church. So, the church is almost kind of like a, it's kind of like an assumption, it's a presupposition. You have to be involved in the local church for you to receive the means of grace. So, that automatically kind of eliminates any kind of Lone Ranger Christianity or anything like that, uh, and just supposes that you are under God's uh, authoritative uh, ministry that he gave. And you remember, uh, we defined uh, at least partially the means of grace as word and sacrament. And we talked mainly about the word, how the word is a means of grace, and specifically the preaching of the word. Um, there is There is certainly... Um, a sort of a general or a broad scope of the means of grace uh, that Wayne Grudem uh, talks about. Uh, there are all these means of grace. And can you guys remember just sort of what are some of the general means of grace in our life? One was private Bible study, okay? Uh, that was kind of a, of a general means of grace, was private Bible study. What were some other, um, what were some other general means of grace, if you can... If you can think of, of some, so I'm going to say um, study, right? Our own Bible study. What are some other means of grace that you can think of outside of word and sacrament specifically? And by sacrament, you remember we're talking about the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper. Yes, sir? Giving. Giving. Uh, okay, so giving, which would be under what more of a general... Uh, well, kind of same thing, right? Giving, tithing. Um, so, like, what what would that be under category? Did you guys know? Worship. Worship. That's right. So, part of our worship, right? Our act of worship. It's not just singing. It's not just listening to the word of God. It's also giving. So, yeah, that's right. So, the more general or broad way is the way that uh, at least. Grudem and others define it would be worship. Worship is a means of grace, of course. Yes, sir. Prayer. Prayer. That's right. Prayer. Time in prayer. So, prayer as a means of grace. What else? Evangelism. Evangelism as a means of grace. That's right. So, I mean, you can kind of see, right? I mean, in your mind, you're probably already thinking, well, what is not a means of grace then? (laughs) Right? And so that's why theologians have categorized there's kind of the official means of grace, and then there's kind of a, a general uh, means of grace that extends to various aspects of the Christian life. But officially speaking, we're looking at word and sacrament, right? Um, I'm only using the word sacrament. I'm trying to use the word sacrament up here. <laughs> uh, only because that's the way that you're going to find it in theologians. So... Um, I'm just going to give it to you the way that you're going to find it if you did a study uh, in any sort of um, systematic theology or historical theology. Uh, Burkhoff, Bavink, Grudem, you know, Robert Raymond, all of these, uh, you know, theologians are going to, you know, put it under these categories, word and sacrament. And the reason they do this is because this is what was officially, um, we could say, officially instituted uh, to the people of God by Christ in his church. Christ being the head of the church, he institutes this, uh, these, this dual means of grace for the church in an official sense, right? So and we're even going to talk about that here in a minute. Let me just kind of fast forward to where we're going to be today. Um, 
Yeah, so we're going to talk about baptism today. So I'll back up so I don't let you see what I got going on over here yet. Um, but we're going to talk about, um, you know, the area of sacrament. Uh, for example, when we say officially instituted by Christ, we're talking about authority, right? That Christ has given the church authority, right, to engage in dispensing the means of grace. Um, uh, for that reason, you know, um, you know, I told a story once that had a gentleman come up to me in the church, and he asked me if he can baptize his children, and uh, if we were okay with that. Um, what do you think I said? No. Right? Is it because I was trying to be mean? <laughs> right? Because I'm not being, I'm being, you know, is it overboard? You know, let the guy baptize his kids, you know, kind of thing. Uh, I know a lot of churches would probably let that happen, and they would say that's a wonderful thing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but for me, you know, I kind of have the theological background of, I think I know what the Bible would have to say on this issue. And if we begin going down that path, where we sort of deviate from the official technical sort of, you know, standard, you know, protocol of what you see in Scripture, that really the baptizing should be done by, you know, uh, the clergymen. It should be done by the ministers of the church, the pastors, the shepherds of the church. Um, or else we can have a situation where, well, if we make an exception that says, well, a father can baptize his daughters, well, wh where does that end? You know what I mean? Um, where does it end? I mean, so we have people, anyone baptizing anyone? Uh, you should. Once you make an exception for one, you've got to make an exception for everybody else. So this is why I think God in his wisdom gave us sort of official institutional protocol uh, that, that baptism is something that should be carried out through the authority of the local church, which just assumes that you go through the proper channels of the church and church leadership, things like that. So I believe that only uh, the officers of the church should engage in baptism, whether it's the elders or the deacons. Uh, that, that would be my uh, standard position. Where did you um, get that from, too? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm getting that from mainly um, the Great Commission, you know, uh, go, therefore, you know, uh, make disciples. Uh, you know, well, here it is right here. Here's the Great Commission. Therefore... Go therefore, make disciples for all nations, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we can interpret that commission as saying, well, so does anybody, is anybody allowed to do any aspect of the Great Commission, right? So is anybody allowed to fulfill the teaching role of the church? Well, of course not, right? He's given us clear directions on who's allowed to teach, who's not allowed to teach, so what I'm saying, uh, Gail, is that princip the principle is, is that any time the, the, the ordinances of the church are going out, they should be done in an orderly fashion. They should be done in a way that goes through the proper channels of the church and that promotes the unity of the church, that promotes really the authority of the church. And so in the same way that I would not allow just anyone to take you know, the authority upon themselves to be teaching in any capacity that they want. In the same way, I, I don't feel, you know, liberty to let anybody just engage in the ordinances of the church. Um, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's historical as well as theological. You know, I think the, the necessary consequence of Scripture, I think, tells us that it should be, you know, a, a qualified minister of the gospel that should be doing that. Um, you see the apostles doing it. You see the disciples doing it. You see, um, for example, you have uh, uh, Philip the deacon doing it. But you don't have anybody else in Scripture baptizing anybody else. Uh, you only see apostles, ministers, deacons. So I think the deacon principle sort of assumes that there is sort of a, uh, the officers are, are the ones that kind of took initiative of that. Right? The church wasn't just like kind of baptizing each other. You know? So I think... You know, that's part of it, you know. Anybody else, any other questions? Because I know that's, that's a tricky one because I even fell, you know, under, like, um, I guess, conviction to, like, I just, I wasn't at ease with it. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't willing to do it. Neither was my, 
the elder that I was pastoring with at the time, he wasn't for it either, you know, but then I thought, well, you know, why not? So I would say the, 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 the natural consequence of Scripture, the principle that it seems as if in the Bible the examples of those who are baptizing are those who are officially authorized by Christ to baptize, to baptize. so it would be the apostles, and then you see the principle with the deacons baptizing, things like that. Um, and then also church history is another big testimony. The early church, you have uh, examples like the Didache. The Didache is an ancient document, a church history that shows kind of like a church manual, the way that things were handled. And in the manual, only ministers are baptizing. You know, so I, I typically want to stay orthodox in the stream of the church. You know what I mean? I don't want to come up with some novel way of doing baptisms. You know, so, you know, uh, I think that's the safer route. You know, uh, and and just because when you when you think about when you symbolize like what is baptism in the church? I mean, it's such a high thing. You know, it's such a such a huge thing. Like we have to give it its proper reverence, its proper place. We cannot just go uh, hodgepodging around with an ordinance like baptism. You know, we have to give it its utmost reverence. You know, because it symbolizes everything. You know, it symbolizes uh, salvation, redemption, everything. So. Um, so baptism, without a doubt, is a means of grace. Uh, and, and so rem- remember what I mean by means of grace. It's not what Catholics mean by the means of grace. Catholics understood the means of grace as that God's saving grace, actually his pardoning grace, was actually dispensed to you through the ordinances of the Catholic Church. So it's, it's almost like you're getting little bits of salvation, through the ordinances, right? That is not what we mean by the means of grace. We just mean that God builds us up. He encourages us in our faith to grow in the grace of God uh, through these, these official means of grace. Um, so I, I find it here in Matthew, for example, this, this, this authoritative commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And again, that commission is not given to individuals in isolation, right? It's given, this is, a, this is Jesus speaking as the head of the church with all authority. <laughs> so this is a very, very official, right, sovereign declaration to the church, right, that he is commissioning them to proceed in this fashion. And actually, in my book, Convert, which we'll study, I guess, you know, um, the last chapter, I have a whole exposition of the Great Commission talking about, because I thought about these things like, like, how is the Great Commission to be executed? You know what I mean? Like, like not just who can baptize, but evangelism. You know, who's supposed to be evangelizing, evangelizing and how? Is everyone called to do evangelism the same way? Are we all called to be missionaries, right? Because many of the disciples were missionaries, Right, all of that, and 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 if we're not um, evangelistic at all, then what does that say about our obedience of the Great Commission? So, I think there's a whole theology of the Great Commission that has to be carefully understood. Um, but baptism, um, turn to Colossians, where you can just look at look at it here. Actually, turn to Romans six. Romans six is a, a, a more, I guess, in depth exposition. Right. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, if you just look at this Colossian text up here, what, what, there's a critical phrase that's used here because salvation is not through baptism, correct? I think we all understand that. Salvation is not... By means of baptism. So it's not surprising that you find Paul making a statement talking about being raised up with him through faith. You see that? So that it's not the act of baptism, <laughs> right, through which we have been united to him, right? It is symbolized in baptism. And if we're talking about spiritual baptism, it's certainly, that's certainly the reality. But it's through faith in the working of God, he raised us up, or raised him up from the dead. But now let's look at Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 2, just for a a bit of a deeper understanding of when we baptize, what are we saying? When we baptize somebody, what are we saying? It It says, may never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So basically, I mean, just right there, 
when somebody gets baptized, they are saying that they have died to sin, right? So it is, in a sense, a testimony to the definitive work of sanctification in our life, that when we go down into the waters of baptism, what we are declaring is that we have made a break with sin, right? So that assumes we are going to live a different way from now on, right? So, uh, I, you know, that's why, you know, baptism and membership go hand in hand, right? Uh, we do not admit people into membership who have not been baptized, we want them to be baptized first so they make a public declaration that they have made a break with sin, they've been united with Christ, and now they've been raised to newness of life. And it's not until you do that that we are going to actually allow you to join the church. It's kind of putting the cart before the horse, so to speak, right? Uh, even in Acts, there's several phrases, if you look very carefully, I can't think of them now, but I know um, there's several phrases in Acts that says, you know, it, 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 it says that after they were baptized, they were joined to the disciples, they were joined to the church. So you, you do have that pattern. Uh, but let's go on here. He says, how, sh- how shall we who die to sin live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, my personal interpretation of Romans chapter 6 is that what we're looking at here is Paul's, not Paul's uh, exposition of physical baptism, but spiritual baptism. Because he says you've been baptized, watch, into Christ, right? Into Christ. Certainly that, you know, when <clears throat> this, is a, this is a text that we should use for baptism to show what it is that baptism is talking about. But it cannot possibly, it cannot possibly be taken literally referring to physical baptism. Or else what you're saying is that by your physical baptism, you are being joined to Christ, so I take this to be referring strictly to spiritual baptism, which is reflected in physical baptism. So anybody have take issue with that? <laughs> or questions about that? That's a big one. There's some that would say, no, he is talking about water baptism right here. Yes, that's sir? That's the base point. Sorry. Go ahead. No. I was going to say that's the basis of Church of Christ, isn't it, is the physical baptism. Is sure. The declaration yeah, and they would turn to passages like this to prove baptismal regeneration. Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, I used this text right the last time we baptized. Yeah. So I didn't read all like the reform commentaries that I have on it, and most of them are, are saying that even the ones who most of them say there's water baptism, they're just saying that your water baptism has such a temporal relationship to the conversion, and especially in the early church, you know, like when people heard the gospel, they responded by baptism. Right. That Paul could use that language, you know, of conversion. And use it synonymously with water baptism because they were so synonymous. You know, mm, not mm. be making the error of mm. your physical water baptism being the means by which you, you know what I mean? So, because most right. of the guys that I've read do take this as water baptism. Right. But they're not making the error of the Church of Christ error of saying right. the act itself that's doing it. Yep. You know? Yep. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I, and I, and I totally understand that, but they, they work, they're working backwards. Right, they're saying that we're going to use it for water baptism, even though we know the reality that it's actually talking about is spiritual baptism. So I would just, I would just phrase it the opposite. I would say it's speaking about spiritual baptism, but we use it for water baptism. Right? I, I mean, I think that's the only sane way to use this. Look at verse four. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. I mean, if we're talking about water baptism, what you're saying is that. By virtue of your water baptism, you're actually buried with Christ. Uh, I, I just don't think that is, a, that is you know, what the text wants us to believe. We're, we're talking about salvific baptism. Baptism in the spirit, we could say. right? Uh, spiritual baptism, like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I think it's verse 13, talks about that we were all baptized in the one spirit. Synonymous idea. Nobody's there is talking about water baptism. He's obviously referring to spiritual salvific baptism. Just like Peter, when Peter talks about baptism, he's not talking about the removable of, fil- of filth from the flesh, but of a pure conscience. I think it's, where is that at? First Peter chapter 3? Is it first, first Peter chapter 3? Yeah. So <clears throat> anyway, but, but they're right in that this is so closely associated with what is being depicted in baptism that we have to use these texts to understand it. 
And so right there and then, we're told that spiritual baptism is a reflection of our our union with Christ in his death. And that's the fact that our old man has died with Christ. And he says, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. So when we come up out of the waters of baptism, we are depicting this reality right here, that we are new people. We're we're declaring ourselves to be a new creation. That's really what it is. I mean, you're really participating in a new creational idea here, that you are a new creature. What's that? Being being born again, you're declaring that you've been born again, born anew. Uh, It is a very powerful outward profession. It is a declaration to the world. And uh, that's why, uh, like uh, Chris was saying, baptism and repentance are so closely linked together. Like Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent each of you, be baptized in the name of the Father, uh, in the name of of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm thinking of Matthew 28 here. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, very much so. In the in the early church, they they couldn't conceive of repentance without baptism, right? And this is why theologians say that baptism is actually uh, not only the uh, not only the first step of obedience for a believer, but it's the sign and it's the seal of the Spirit of, on our lives. Uh, really interesting, right? Because by our baptism, what we're saying is that we have been sealed with the Spirit. Not through our water baptism, but our, wa- our water baptism is declaring that, that we have been sealed with the Spirit. We've received the gift of the Holy Spirit through conversion. Um, other means of grace of baptism, and I mean, I think we could all testify to this, right? Baptism is a means of grace because, number one, it's a testimony to the church. How many of you enjoy watching people get baptized? I do. Uh, I remember when Russell got baptized. It was glorious. I could just look at everyone's faces, right? We're beaming. And, and, and everybody else that's been baptized in our church. It is a true means of grace. I mean, it really encourages us all. Um, it's a witness to the world. It testifies to the world. Um, my, my, how many of your guys' baptisms were, was public, like really public, like out on the beach or something? <laughs> Maybe not in Texas out on the beach, right? <laughs> well, maybe. I guess if you go down far south, like Corpus Christi or something. But, yeah, I got baptized at the beach. And there were all these people, crowds of people gathered around watching uh, people get baptized that day. And I remember how, I don't want to say proud, but just how just joyous I was that, that the world, you know, the world was witnessing me get baptized, you know. And, and I could tell the world, I'm a new creation. The old man is dead, you know, I can't wait. I can't wait to depict that in in my baptism. You know, and Chuck Smith baptized me actually. So many of you that know Chuck Smith, you know, Papa Chuck, Papa Chuck. You know, it was glorious. He said, "We're standing in the grave of your own life." I'll never forget his words. You know, it was a very meaningful time. It's a declaration of our faith, and here we go. It's a reminder of the church's authority. It's a reminder of the church's authority. That it's only by your connection, your association to the church, of, to the church of God, right? It's a testimony that you're joining yourself to the church. It's a reminder that the church has the authority that Jesus Christ invested into it, right? Now, that's why the church is so important, you guys, because, you know, Jesus Christ did not put his authority anywhere else on planet Earth. You thought about that? He didn't put his authority in a seminary. He didn't put his authority in a missions agency or a parachurch organization. They're not allowed to baptize. They're not allowed to do communion. They're not allowed to. Uh, they're not allowed to uh, uh, have membership in the sense. It's not a church. They're not not, not even allowed to do church discipline in the sense. Uh, I guess they do in a sense if they want to maintain any level of integrity. They have to do what the church would do. But they themselves even would be forced then to cooperate with the local church in order to actually make it authoritative, right? It's one thing for a seminary to say you're in sin. It's another thing for the church to put you out, you know, two different things. Any questions on that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yeah.
Good question. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, it just, it just, I guess it would depend on the circumstances. You know what I mean? Certainly, if you're in the context of a mission field, and you know, you're in an, let's just say you're in an underground situation in China, right, where the pastor just got, you know, taken to prison, and uh, there's nobody left, you know, and it just happens to be some brother, some sister. And that, 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 you know, is willing to baptize you. Okay, I can understand ex- those extraordinary circumstances, you know what I mean? But when we do it willfully, like I've actually been a part of baptizing people unofficially apart from the church when I was very young in the Lord, and I completely regret it, you know, because it just did not, it, it didn't conform, I think, with a high view of God's word and God's church and, you know, the ordinances and everything like that. So, um I don't know, I guess I would leave it to the individual to decide if their conscience is okay being baptized by someone outside of the church. Um, I think if it was me personally, I'd probably want to get rebaptized. That's just me, you know what I mean? Anybody else on that? Because, um, Juan, you got baptized, right? But yours, yours was, you were on a boat or something, right? Yeah, but I, I got baptized <laughs> here just because... I, I, my my first baptism, I saw. I mean, it was under a kind of a a oneness mm. Pentecostal type theology. That's right. And I, I didn't think you know it was administered with the proper mindset. Yeah. Um, Even know. though you believed. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. See, I mean, that's that's kind of what we always counsel in the church is just make sure you know that you had a proper baptism. I think it's more important to make sure than not to do it. You know. Um, yes, sir. Would you say, like, baptism produces any kind of sanctification? I think it's a... I mean, that's part of, like, the means of grace, right? It imparts grace to us. It causes us to grow, Uh right, in a way that had we not received the means of grace, we would not be blessed in the way that baptism is designed to bless us. So in a sense, yes, it promotes promotes sanctification in our lives. I mean, I, I know for me, I can testify that when I was baptized, I had a newfound zeal and joy, right? And, and my heart was full of life and joy and, 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 and love, you know? And so, absolutely, I think it does increase your sanctification, you know, in some sense. Because there are, I mean, there are people that claim to be Christians, they've never been baptized, and when you hit them up about it, they can get defensive about it. Well, yeah. Why do I have to get baptized? Oh, sure. You know. Yeah. Those are typically the people that say, why do I have to go to church? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's true. So, so about the um, church's authority, like, yeah. like what, would, what would be the, I guess because like, when, I, when I see that, I think, I think Catholicism. Yeah. So like, what would be that distinguishment between sola ecclesia versus sola scriptura? Like, when you say church authority, you mean through the word as opposed to... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, church authority, meaning obviously based on sola scriptura, right? But also based on the, the, the authority of Jesus Christ himself, the head of the church, right? And the, and the, the authority that he left in the church, right? Um, uh, you know, because, I mean, Jesus is the one who says, I have all authority, and then he authorizes the church to go and execute the, the gospel in his name. Um, and, and the Apostle Paul recognized the authority of the local church. Remember? Uh, where is that at? 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter... 1 Corinthians chapter... No, no, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians, I think it is, chapter 2? Yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 I think is a good example to show that even Paul recognized the authority of the local church in Corinth. Uh, and you see that when if you read a commentary on this, they actually go into this. He says, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, and if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the present ref, uh, in, in the present presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. In other words, what they point out is in verse 10, that the church's decision to forgive the offender that's being talked about here, 
Paul was ready to go along with the decision of the church, right? If they decided to forgive this offender, he himself, he, he says, look, whoever you forgive, I forgive. Basically, he's saying, I'm trusting the due diligence that you've done, that you've, you know, and, and, and you've searched out every matter carefully. You know, you've gone through the proper channels of church discipline. And in forgiving this brother, Paul says, I stand with the decision of the church. So he was willing to do that. Um, I, I did that myself um, not too long ago, actually. Actually, uh, was a difficult decision, but I spoke at a church once where a pastor had been forgiven by his congregation. And some people in my, and this is my previous church, they didn't really agree with the fact that I was preaching there because of what had gone on. But my theology was, hey, I stand with the decision of the local church. It's not up to me to go in there and, you know, try to overthrow the decision of that church. That's not my business. So in a sense, I was practicing this principle right here. Whatever you have forgiven, I forgive also. You know, I stand with the authority of the church. That's it, period. So, <clears throat> so that's what I mean by, you know, the authority of the church that's invested in the church. Um, it just boils down to, like, what is a church, right? If you're meeting at Starbucks with some buddies, is that a church? You know what I mean? Uh, I think we would all say no, right? And people take that, that text out of context, out of uh, Matthew 18, where they say, well, two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst, right? How many people, I can, if I had a nickel for every time I've heard somebody tell me, <laughs> you know, this is the church, man, you and me, we're the church. <laughs> and it's like, well, I, I appreciate your heart, man, but that's, you know, that's, that's not what Jesus meant in Matthew 18. In the context of Matthew 18, it's actually very, very, yeah, it's, it's very, very uh, technical. It's official, right? It's the decision of the authority of the church, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. So you have a question, Avi? Uh, thinking about the Mark Hill pastor, I forgot his name. Uh, Driscoll. Driscoll. Huh. And I, I know he has kind of put a spin on his sin against the church, the congregation mm-hmm. in the past, and hasn't really owned up or repented of his sin. And I believe he started a new church in Arizona, I think I've read. Yeah. But how do you approach that case where the congregation, under maybe false pretenses, of, have forgiven him, yet he has really owned, he hasn't owned up to his sin or repented from it? How, how would you say is that a case by case exception, or would yeah, you, you have, go with the church right. authority on that? You only have you, you only have a f- maybe. right. Well, you only have a few choices. You know what I mean? You're either going to uh, you're either going to if you're a member of that church, you're either going to try to overthrow the, you know, raise the concerns and, and, and go to the body of Christ and appeal to the members of the body, you know, try to raise some sort of awareness within, or you can protest or you can leave, you know what I mean? Um, uh, that's, you know, that's kind of your choices. I mean, if people are willing, knowing what they know about him, right, which I don't even know the whole, on that, don't even know the whole story, but, um, you know, knowing what they know about him and they're still willing to be under his shepherding, and under his ministry, I mean, you know, uh, I'm not going to say that they're not in a real church. What is a real church? A real church, according to the Reformers, is any place where the gospel is properly articulated, the ordinances are properly dispensed, and church, church discipline is practiced. You know what I mean? So it could be what Grudem talks about. It's a less pure church. Right? You have some scandal, you know, what it was, exactly how it worked out. It's not the most pure situation, but at the end of the day, now let's examine what is Driscoll doing. Is he not teaching the gospel, right? Is he not, uh, is he not executing the ordinances of the church? Is he not engaging in church discipline? You might want to throw that in his face. Well, yeah, no, you're not doing church discipline because you didn't do it or whatever, right? Revelation kind of elaborates on that where it describes the different churches in Revelation and not all of yeah. them were pure. Oh, yeah. Some of them were very, very impure. I mean, we've we got to be honest, right? In the Bible, I mean, go no further than the Corinthian church to see a church that's really, really messed up. And yet Paul calls it a church. That right there has made it very, you know, very difficult for me just to, like, you know, sort of write people off, you know, like, oh, they're so weak, you know, blah, blah, blah. Look, I mean, as long as they have the gospel, right, as long as, they, as, long as they're dispensing the ordinances, and they're practicing some form of church discipline, you know, I'm willing to identify that as a church. So don't all stone me at once, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying, when I look at Corinth, 
I mean, you got factions, divisions, sexual morality. You got people coming against Paul. You got factions, people. You got a brother in the congregation that's going around saying Paul's not an apostle. I mean, it's it's chaos, and yet Paul identifies it as a church. You know, so yes, sir. Yeah, so one of the only exceptions would probably be uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh huh. Ethiopian eunuch. Yeah. What exception? Well, no, I would say that is the authority of the church. Philip was a deacon of the early church. Okay. Commissioned. I mean, supernatural in the sense that God supernaturally called him out to go do this evangelistic um, work, which was for a very, very specific purpose. It was for a redemptive historical purpose, right? And showing how now the nations are flocking into Christ, right? So uh, Philip was sort of the, he was typological in that sense, what he was doing, you know? He was fulfilling prophecy, really. So, um, um, but yeah, he was definitely under the authority of the local church uh, as a deacon of the early church. So, so. Grudem says this, since baptism is a physical symbol of the death and resurrection of Christ and our participation in them, it should also give additional assurance of union with Christ to all believers who are present. So you ask a question like, Somebody asked the question, does it help us in our sanctification? Yes, it does, because it gives us assurance, right? It increases our assurance that we are in union with Christ. So let me go on, because then I'll never finish. Next one is Lord's Supper. I know you guys are all dying to get into eschatology and find out how much I don't know. (laughs) But uh, the Lord's Supper is another, obviously, very important. We're going to take the Lord's Supper today, praise the Lord. Um, But um, there are... The way I look at this is two different blessings. There's the redemptive blessings found in 1 Corinthians. Why don't we turn there? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, because then we'll look at chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is 10, verse 16. And then we'll switch over to chapter 11. But it says here, Is not the cup of the blessing, which, is, which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. And so what is, what is Paul saying? Again, Paul is not teaching the idea of transubstantiation. I don't, think, I don't even think he's teaching consubstantiation. Uh, the idea, you know, the Lutheran idea of the understanding of how the elements work. I think what he's saying is that he's just saying when we participate of the Lord's Supper, what what is indicative of that is that we are sharing in the blood of Christ. He's basically saying, what is it describing? It's, it's, it's just like baptism. It's reflecting the reality of our union with Christ. So much so that our, what is union with Christ but sharing in the blood of Christ? Right? What is union with Christ but sharing in the body of Christ? Right? And that's what we're saying when we participate of the Lord's Supper that we, have, we, we are uh, beneficiaries of his blood and we are beneficiaries of his body, right? And that's so much theology right, right there. Can, do you see it, right? The blood and the body of Christ. There's so much theology right there. The blood of Christ, how much theology is there, right? How much? What does that speak to you of? We need another hour. This is not fair. <laughs> I'm serious. What does the blood of Christ speak to you about? What is it? Justification. Justification. Anyone? Forgiveness of sin. Cleansing of sin. Propitiation. Reconciliation. Expiation. Right? Redemption. I mean, all this stuff we can think about in terms of the blood, what it symbolizes. What about, what about the body? What does the body of Christ speak to us about? Anyone? Glorification. Glorification, the fact that we are going to be like him. Okay. The fact that he became like us. I think that's important, right? Because it's like, here we are with the elements in our hands, and we know the blood, and we, we, we we know about the cleansing power of the blood. Nothing but the blood, right? But what about the body? Resurrection. His resurrection. Okay. And what did you say, Chris? I'm sorry. I'm saying the fact that he became like us. 
that he shared in our humanity. He stood in solidarity with us. The perfect Paschal Lamb. And that's what I was thinking about. What what do you mean by that? The only suitable sacrifice. The only perfect body. Why was he a suitable sacrifice? Without sin. That's right. So to me, the the body of Christ speaks of his active obedience. Whereas the blood of Christ speaks of his passive obedience. Right? His passive obedience is that which he suffered as he shed his blood in our place. The active obedience is what he did in the body for us by obeying perfectly. Right? Like Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, leaving an example for us to follow in his footsteps. That's what the body of Christ should speak to us about. So much. Grudem says the Lord's Supper is not simply an ordinary meal among human beings. It is a fellowship with Christ in his presence and at his table. Now turn over to, uh, oh no, verse 17, sorry. I thought we were chapter 11. Verse 17 says, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. So according to, according to Paul, the, the bread the body should also remind us of our union as a corporate union with Christ. It should remind us of the unity that we have as a church. For we are all for we all partake of one bread. So great unity, right? Now, chapter eleven. Turn to chapter eleven. Our Lord's Supper is a means of grace in different ways. There's different aspects in which we can just say, even from the classic text on the Lord's Supper, that it is a means of grace. Number one. It is purifying. It's a purifying time for the church. Look at verse 27. It says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. In an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So he has to examine himself. It's a time of self-examination. It's a purifying time, in other words, right? When we take the elements into our hands, we have to ask ourselves the hard questions. How are we doing with the Lord? How are we doing with one another? How, how is our heart for the brethren, right? Where is our heart for the Lord today? And that's, that's what really should come to mind when we take those elements into our hands. Uh, also, it has an evangelistic... Um, and it has an evangelistic effect. It's an evangelistic time for the church. Uh, did I miss that verse up there? I did, didn't I? Uh, but he goes on to say there in verse 26, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you, plural, that's a plural pronoun, the church, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I would say that's a distributive plural pronoun, which means each one of you, Right? proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's not just a little religious exercise where you take a little cracker and a little cup and you throw it back and, right? We're doing that and what we are doing is we're actually preaching a sermon in doing that. And the unbeliever will see it. The only reason in the world that they would take that little cracker and take that little cup is that it must have great significance or else it's just kind of a weird religious ritual it's not it's not a weird religious ritual it, it's it symbolizes everything it's the gospel yes, sir i was reading thomas watson he has that the lord's supper and he indicates he points out how in in the gospels how it, it says that jesus after he had supped so they finished eating physical food that's when he institutes the lord's supper to show that it was not for physical meat for a physical means, but for a spiritual, because they haven't mm. been satisfied physically. Mm. Amen. So I thought that was pretty. Amen. Awesome. And I actually get into that, but um, you know, it's also an eschatological time because it says, you know, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So with a view to eternity, that's what the Lord's Supper should do. It reminds us of our eschatological trajectory. That's what it does. But also, if you go to John chapter six, which we do not have time, we are woefully out of time, Um, but in John chapter 6, which certainly was in preparation for the Lord's Supper, the things that are spoken there, so I'll have to kind of fast forward, but John 6, 55, 56, so many different things, the Lord's Supper reminds us that we have to be feasting on Christ, right, 
we have to be feasting on Christ. Um, and in 652 of John, John gives you, I really encourage you, take up John chapter 6. And I know that, you know, Calvinism, we want to always study, you know, all that the Father gave to me, you know, I'll lose another, raise him up on the last day. <laughs> but keep going, you know, keep going to, to this section where Jesus is saying, look, if you don't eat my flesh, you don't eat my, eat my, eat, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you know what I mean? You have no life, right? Isn't that what he says? Chapter 6, 52. Oh boy, I'm on thin ice here. Looking at the clock back there. Is that clock fast? Does anybody know? I'm hoping. Yeah, it is a little fast. Okay, all right. Good. So, John six fifty two, The Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. What is he saying right there? Unless you take communion? That's not what he's saying, right, Lynn? What is he saying? Taking part in his life, his spiritual life. Okay. Anybody else? I also think of like To that, yes, sir. Expecting what he did at the Christ, at the cross, like expecting all of it, he said to do the heart absolutely. Sure. I think it's just a struggle to, to maintain a relationship with the Lord daily, staying in His Word, trying to speak to us. That's how He encourages us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's mm-hmm. as simple as that to me. Yeah, and I, probably the best way I've heard somebody put this was that you know what Jesus is talking about is our the need for man to spiritually internalize the Son of God, right? We have to internalize him by faith. Right? That's, so this is a metaphor for faith, right? Like the same thing that Jesus says, you know, those who come to me, he's not actually, actually saying you need to step forward, <laughs> right? He's saying by coming is a metaphor of faith, right? And there are many, many, many metaphors of faith in, in John's gospel like this, you know, where you have to drink his blood, eat his flesh, and uh, thereby spiritually feasting on Christ. I mean, it reminds me of uh, when I was a child, the Nike commercials for basketball. It was uh, eat, sleep, drink basketball. And, you know, it was motivated towards sports. In a sense, you know, in a biblical sense, that's how I see it. Yeah. Feast on him, right? So nourish yourself on Christ is what he's saying. <clears throat> Obviously, the salvific aspect of it, right? Partaking in Christ by faith for salvation. But then also for sustenance, right? Look at John, look at verses 57 and 58, okay? This is, this is the last, this is my last point. He says, as, living, uh, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. Watch this. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever, speaking of himself. That goes back to verse 31. I am the bread that came out of heaven. Our fathers, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven, which is a quotation going all the way back to Exodus chapter 6, verse 4, Numbers chapter 11, verse 8, Psalm chapter 78, verse 24, and other places. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus saying is that by feasting on Jesus Christ by faith, you are actually coming into the reality of the typology of Exodus and Numbers and the whole manna episode and how they feasted on that manna. In other words, what he's saying is true sustenance is not going to be found by miraculous bread that fell out of the sky. True sustenance is found in the bread of heaven, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what he's saying, so... Any other questions, comments, statements, anything? That's the means of grace. Very short exposition of the means of grace, right? Yes, sir. Uh, from the sacraments, you know, okay, so you, you would say that the Reformers said that baptism and the Lord's Supper were like the official, right? Like, there's no doubt about that those are yeah, the, the, the means of grace. Yeah, the official Why means of grace. The word and sacrament. Why wouldn't marriage be part of that? 
Marriage? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I was thinking about, you know, the Catholic Church would recognize that as an official sacrament. Uh huh. And in the New Testament, I think, you know, Paul elaborates a great deal on marriage. And it does cause you to internalize the relationship. Right. In the church. And I just. You know, probably because. Probably because it's connected to salvation, whereas not everyone is going to be married. Uh, you have single people in our church that are just entitled, just as much entitled to the means of grace as we are, right? So, um, uh, but I think it's just because these, both of these, you know, are just really, um, you know, the two, I guess what you could say, the two signs that God has given to the church. You know, he didn't give the church all these rituals to do. He just gave us two ordinances, you know, baptism and Lord's Supper. Uh, so thankfully, it's, you know, I guess to one degree we say, thankfully it's not the marriage because then what about single people? What about, pe- what about widows? You know, they no longer have the means of grace. So God did it, I think, to show us the sufficiency, right? It's just a sufficient thing. It's efficacious. It's, it's effective for every believer no matter what situation you're in. You know, that would be kind of caught me by surprise with that one. <laughs> but that would be my initial thought, you know. Anybody else well, want to add to that? Because that's a condi- that would be a conditional grace, which everyone's not Right, it would be almost a conditional grace. Very good point. Yeah. Amen. All right, let me pray for us and we'll go, okay? <clears throat> Father, Lord, again, we thank you for um, the fact that you have given us everything that we need in life and godliness, Lord. It's very true. And uh, you have blessed us with so much. And Lord, the fact that you give us two ordinances to commemorate our salvation and to be able to um, focus our our sight, our gaze on the living bread, the, the, the bread that fell out of heaven and came to us and died for us and now gives us life. Lord, what a, what a gracious, gracious ordinances these are. And uh, Father, also your word, we just pray that in our church, the word would always run swiftly. It would have full effect, Lord. And I see the effect of your word uh, working in your church time and time again. And I, I just thank you so much for what you're doing through the ministry of your word in our church, Lord. Thank you. Bless your people now in Jesus' name. And bless our worship. Amen.